Good afternoon, everyone. Um, and uh, thank you all for joining us um, at the inaugural lecture of the Clinical Companion series uh, by the Sydney Environment Institute. Um, my name is Abbas Elzain, and I am Professor of Environmental Engineering at the School of Civil Engineering of the University of Sydney. Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which the Camperdown campus of the University of Sydney is located, the uh, Karigal people of the Eora Nation. Uh, pay respect to their elders, past, present and future, and remind us that sovereignty was never ceded. Uh, please feel free to acknowledge in the chat window uh, indigenous owners of the sites where you happen to be, especially if they are other than the Kadigal uh, people. Now, country acknowledgement is especially important, I think, in a talk about land and oceans and the delicate interface between them. I still remember when I uh, first arrived in Australia in 1995, in the first week or so, um, before I've had the chance to see the bush and the outback and other remarkable um, aspect of this, you know, incredible continent. There were two aspects that I found uh, um, uh, wonderfully fascinating and uh, uh, rather incomprehensible. The first one was the exquisitely sonorous names of places in highway signs uh, and maps, you know, Tamarama, Wulumulu, um, uh, Paramata, Wagga Wagga, and the second were those two quietly beautiful rock pools right next to the ocean in Bondi and Kuji uh, that I'd never seen the likes before. Now, they were incomprehensible because I didn't understand back then why you would want to swim uh, in a pool right next to the ocean um, uh, uh, instead of dipping uh, straight into the sea. Uh, my experience of the sea had been shaped by the uh, rather gentle Mediterranean, uh, and I had no idea back then uh, about the surf and the violent waves of the Pacific Ocean. Of course, a few bruises later, I learned my lesson. But ocean pools um, are one of the landmarks of Sydney I now like to show uh, uh, friends visiting from overseas. So when the uh, wonderful Michel Santan from the uh, Sydney Environment Institute uh, asked me whether I'd be interested in moderating a talk by Nicole Larkin about ocean pools, um, I looked up Nicole's work um, and did not hesitate in, in, in saying yes. Um, Nicole is an artist and an architect who has exhibited work at the Sculpture by the Sea event in Sydney in 2013 and 2016. You can see footage, by the way, of her work, uh, Dynamics and Impermanence, uh, the one in 2016. You can see footage of that uh, on YouTube and it's, uh, it's, it's recommended, it's highly recommended. Um, and so Nicole, despite graduating from the University of Sydney um, um, only seven years ago, um, has already received several awards and grants for her work, including Young Australian Designers of the Year Award. I'm reading now the, um, uh, uh, the Awards for Sustainable Design, Australian Timber Design Award, and Un University of Sydney Alumni Award. Of course, most relevant for tonight's talk is that Nicole has been documenting and researching ocean pools uh, for the last few years in a project that has rightly received significant attention in the media, including The Guardian and the ABC. So we're in for the treat this afternoon. Now, before I hand over to Nicole, uh, just a few housekeeping matters. Um, uh, Nicole will be speaking to us for about 45 minutes, um, after which I will comment on the talk for five minutes, just share some reflections, uh, then open the floor to questions. Uh, please enter your questions in the uh, chat in Zoom during the talk. We will be looking at them. We will be um, uh, 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 sorting through them, if you like. And we will try to go through as many of them as possible during the um, uh, question time. Now, feel free also to comment in chat. Uh, but if, you are, if you're writing a question, please try and make it keep, it, keep it to the point to help us uh, in the Q&A. Also, please make sure that your microphones are on mute. And that's all I have, Nicole. It's all yours. Thanks, Abbas. Um, hi everyone, uh, welcome to the series. I'd also like to acknowledge the Gadigal people and also just a broad note that my research on ocean pools is a very small fragment of time and a lot of them have a deep history with Aboriginal people in Australia, which is a topic I would like to go into more uh, if, I had, if I had the time. Um, so as Ella said, 
Uh, I'm a practicing architect based in Sydney and I work across design, architecture and urban planning. And in 2014, I launched The Wild Edge, uh, which was my research project looking into ocean pools. Uh, through the project, I mapped all 60 ocean pools um, in New South Wales and created a framework for understanding this typology. So today I'm going to talk about um, how I set up that framework and about the mapping I undertook as part of this. Uh, and I'll also discuss the findings and how they've translated into more recent work, uh, which touches on much broader issues of coastal management in New South Wales. So ocean pools, uh, by, by their nature, are really simple structures. Um, they sit in the intertidal zone and they offer kind of a unique and protected access to the ocean. I have my own definition of them, which is simple interventions, and they're really byproducts of our love affair with the beach. Um, from an architect's perspective, we see everything through the lens of built fabric, um, and if our built fabric speaks of um, how we connect with our surroundings, ocean pools talk of you know, Australia's love affair with the ocean. The ocean pools are also pretty important hubs of recreation and community activation in New South Wales. Each one has, is typically attached to a surf club or a swimming club um, and they respond to quite complex um, challenges occupying a coastline, which is a constantly changing space. Um, they're quite efficient pieces of infrastructure. None of them are major aquatic centres. They're usually a simple concrete wall, although we do have um, examples like icebergs, which are what we call a formalised pool. Um, but all of them share in common that they're well loved and well used by the communities um, that they serve. Um, and they facilitate safe and inclusive access to the ocean, which is also an important part of the community. So many, uh, many of these pools were built in the early 20s as public works projects during the Depression. Uh, and when we talk about fostering economic stimulus, these were the kind of projects that the state government looked to post-World War One. They were optimistic and idealistic and they delivered community-based assets at that time, um, which is quite poignant given our, our current um, circumstances. So the resources that they invested then created this prevalence of coastal infrastructure, which we have today and which continues to be a really unique and prized collection of, of assets in New South Wales. Um, so this is a picture of Bronte Bars, uh, which was built much earlier than the 20s. It was built in um, 1887. Um, Alec Wickham was a forefather of the Australian crawl, um, which was a stroke he practiced at Bronte Bars, um, and which has since more commonly be, been um, known as freestyle. So Bronte Bars is really one of those pools that's at the heart of Australian culture and the birth of swimming in Australia. Um, Bronte bars are still hugely popular today and they're used year round. Um, they're even used during the evening for night swimming. There's a big light that goes on and in a hot evening you can go down after work and have a dip. Um, Bronte's um, currently being assessed for significance on the State Heritage Register for all those reasons. Um, this is a photo from 2016 when we had one of our um, now regular East Coast lows. Um, many ocean pools are sort of becoming fragile due to their age and their construction is rudimentary and they're in a quite harsh environment. Um, so they're frequently under, the, under repair and, and some of them are definitely at, list, at risk of being lost in the face of sea level rise and increasing, increasingly severe storm surges. Um, so issues like this were the catalyst of my project. I was thinking about what the future of ocean pools would look like in New South Wales um, if we're going to deal with sea level rise and storm surge. Are we going to lose these assets? What can we do to protect them? And what are the steps that we take to do that? So the idea of this project was to provide sufficient information for us as a community to answer that question. And key to understanding what ocean pools should be is understanding what they are and why they're so valued by their community in New South Wales. Um, so this was my starting point and to understand and document this, I created a framework uh, based on analysis of existing ocean pools and their context. Um, and broadly, this encompasses two things. 
the natural and built environment, so the natural landscape, but also the actual built form of the pool, um, but also the social and community values. So what does the community value about ocean pools? Um, and I went to investigate that from there through mapping and analysis. Um, so basically going back and forward between those things and trying to create connections. The first, um, the first objective was to understand what the community values around ocean pools and how this plays out in their built form, siting and materiality. So what are the key characteristics of ocean pools? I'll speak about this first. So to map the characteristics of the natural and built environment, I required survey information of each pool in New South Wales. Um, I created a um, focus study of the 60 ocean facing ocean pools. Um, there's of course a much broader scope that you can take with where there's about 120 um, swimming enclosures in New South Wales and that includes um, netted enclosures, harbour pools, ring of rocks um, and they're all still valid and important things to look at um, and in this case, uh, I didn't look at them just because I needed to keep my scope uh, defined. So I um, was able to look at all of these pools using a combination of mapping software and drones. And it meant that um, as a single person, I could um, generate 3D survey data of each of them efficiently and inexpensively. So to give you an idea of how this worked, I've used Whale Beach Ocean Pool as an example. This is on the northern beaches in New South Wales. Um, I used a, a drone to take a grid of aerial photos at each pool I went to. So you fly in one direction and then the other, taking as many photos as you can. Um, and each of the images overlaps the next so that the software can find multiple common points. And the way the, the software works is to basically um, triangulate various points in space so it's, it's sort of like trigonometry calculations multiplied a million times over. And it's creating spatial information from photographs, um, which is actually quite an old technology. It's just that now that we can use it with drones, which have GPS locations in them, um, it's become a lot more effective. So I'll just run this video a couple of times so you get an opportunity to see it. But what this is showing is the product of my mapping, which we call a point cloud. So all the photos are showed above and there's also a collection of dots below and that's all those trigonometry points that I was talking about. And what it gives you is a really rich data set. You can see a lot of detail is captured in there and it's the sort of detail that you would never be able to catch through survey, through traditional survey methods, um, which are also quite time intensive. This survey uh, took me 20 minutes on site to capture and it's a huge amount of really rich data. That, that survey data was really powerful and it was possible for me to capture it for all 60 pools in a six week period. Um, and, and all of that information is freely available online through my research now as well. Um, and I'll just walk you through the way that I use that data to really understand the context and the built form of these pools in detail. This is the bogey hole, which is Australia's, well, post-colonial oldest ocean pool. Uh, it's 200 years old. Um, it's also incredibly well loved and well used uh, and, in, and quite an iconic pool because it is completely exposed on the rock platform and, and can give you a stunning experience of the coast. I surveyed this pool and created a 3D model, which is what you see at the moment, and was able to cut sections through those um, 3D models to really understand what is happening with the rock platform and the pool in detail. So this series of images is analysis I undertook to plot the tide level, uh, so the mean high watermark, the low tide and high tide, and then the wall crest. Um, and all of that analysis is really important because it allows me to understand where the pool sits in relation to the tides, and that's a critical part of how all ocean pools work. It's about how they flush, whether the water is getting in and out, um, and how protected they are. So how protected people are in the pool when there's a high swell on. 
this image shows all, all 60 ocean pools together, oriented north and scaled at the same size. Um, this kind of mapping where you can see all of the pools together um, allows them to be read as a whole and starts to allow us to analyze outliers and patterns. So this is the result of all of the mapping that I did and really the information that I was looking for to start um, coming to some interesting conclusions about ocean pool typology. Um, so you might be able to start to understand rectilinear pools versus organic pools um, and what their prevalence is. Basically, um, I'm just demonstrating how that data was incredibly useful in, in understanding ocean pools as a whole. Um, it's one thing to understand um, a small collection of these pools, but what's really important is to see them as an entire typology. In New South Wales, we have a greater concentration of ocean pools than anywhere else in the world. And that in and of itself says something about our connection with the water, but also how we interface with our coastlines. Um, so understanding this information is really valuable um, and how each of the pools have developed differently in each different regions says different things about that. This is um, some of the different ways that you can look at them, grouping them in by size or um, circumference. And that analysis has been really useful for understanding broader topics. This is a series of the pools in Newcastle. Um, so they have not only the oldest, but also the biggest ocean pools. And from that, you can understand that the geology of that region is quite significant. They have broad, flat rock platforms, um, which allowed them to do those spectacular large scale pools. And all this is to sort of just say that, you know, it allows us to identify those key characteristics of the typology as a whole. The second part of the analysis is then to understand what the community values about these characteristics. So this aspect of the analysis is based on principles from the Borough Charter. Um, and the Borough Charter is a document which um, sets out best practice guidelines for heritage significance in the natural and built environment. Um, the Charter provides a formal framework for understanding and protecting valued aspects of the natural and built environment in Australia. Um, many, many of our ocean pools have been listed um, either as locally or state significant over the years. And a key factor in all of these listings is the natural beauty of the ocean pools. So what, what we really value is where they are in the landscape and how they frame it. Um, so I, I did a review of all of the heritage listings for ocean pools and um, the records document that our collective community value for Ocean Pool really resides in the unique experiences they facilitate with the natural coastal landscape. But this doesn't necessarily mean, for instance, that the best examples of Ocean Pools are those which disappear into the rock platform and the tidal zone. Although this characteristic is definitely what makes Bermagui Blue Pool um, exemplary for existence. Bermagui Blue Pool is the one that you see on the right it's down south, uh, about six hours south of Sydney. Um, it's a stunning pool and quite iconic. It's um, featured quite heavily, both in social media and in um, tourism in New South Wales. So these two contrasting examples are shown uh, because they're both well-valued and iconic pools, um, despite one being quite naturalised and one being what I call quite formal, which is icebergs. Uh, Bondi icebergs on the left. Um, but what's significant about them both is that they both facilitate a heightened experience with the coastal landscape. Um, so generally this is governed by how the pool frames the foreshore, how it facilitates a connection with the water's edge, how it um, allows you to immerse in the ocean and how it enhances our relationship with coastal landscapes. And I, I show these two examples side by side, basically to say that that, that happens in very different ways. Um, and we have very different values um, which we place on these two pools. One is in a highly dense urban area which um, has to facilitate heavy maintenance and safety. Uh, and the other one is in a secluded open natural setting which 
gets a lot less usage, um, but you know, is is equally as loved and iconic as the other. Um, so this balance. Um, is, is a defining characteristic of the typology and it really sets up the spectrum of how formalized uh, versus how natural our ocean pools are. So to understand this further, I assessed and plotted on a scale each of the ocean pools in New South Wales and this scatter graph has a, um, two axes. One of them is how secluded the pool is uh, versus how activated it is. So whether it's in a remote location or whether it's in a dense urban location. And the other axis plotted it based on how natural, so how much um, it is within the landscape and how much it is formalized. So how much of it is built concrete, um, are the steps concrete, is the bottom of the, the pool floor concreted, um, or is it mostly the rock platform and there's just a small amount of concrete enclosing the swimming area? What this analysis really communicates um, and the mapping process that's been undertaken is the drivers that shape ocean pools as a typology. So you can see that they're really um, being shaped by um, the amenity and activation required uh, balanced with the natural landscape and seclusion of the area. So there were three clusters um, that emerged when I did this analysis. Um, some pools were quite secluded and natural. Some were secluded but formalized, so they were more concrete, uh, and some were activated and formalized. And that is, um, icebergs is a perfect example of that. There weren't many examples that were activated and natural. Um, and that's because most of the pools that are more natural, um, they just don't, they just can't um, sustain high usage because they can't be maintained. Um, for instance, if you had quite a natural pool that was being heavily used, every time that you maintain it, it's an incredible amount of resources because you are having to clean an, a rock platform rather than cleaning a, a concrete based pool. So that's why you don't get those um, examples cropping up very much. Um, and this, this analysis in this graph um, as an extension describes our relationship with the coast more broadly. So ocean pools in some ways are an analog of this relationship and a really useful one. Um, it, it foregrounds how otherwise competing forces can coexist in coastal areas and enhance one another. So most coastal areas um, at the moment have a great deal of um, competing pressures on them, um, both, of, both as a result of our desire to live near the coast, but the byproduct of that being that it puts incredible pressure on the environmental processes there. Um, and it's also a place of constant change. And the fact that we put our settlement so close to the coast is in direct competition with that. So in light of that, um, I'd like to finish the second half of my presentation by taking these fundamental ideas that we can learn from ocean pools and starting to under understand how we can apply them. And two projects I want to address, I want to discuss to address um, how we inhabit the water's edge. Um, both, both have an understanding both understand that in a place of constant ebb and flow at that water's edge, hard boundaries of every kind are really a threat. Um, and I'm talking about coastal hazards and, and critical issues which are coming to a head at the moment in New South Wales. So both projects, um, they're of very different scales. One of them relates to the entire New South Wales coast and another is um, a single project um, in Port Macquarie. Um, and more recently, my work, my work has, um, the focus of my work has been centering on this issue. So the first project I wanted to talk about was the New South Wales Coastal Design Guidelines. This was initially a Department of Planning document that was published in 2004. Uh, and I um, collaborated with Realm Studios, um, a landscape architecture and urban design firm in Sydney, to do a revision of these guidelines. 
and their purpose is to provide guidance on best practice planning and urban design in the coastal region. Um, the guideline focused, um, among other strategies, on the unique pressures which act on coastal communities in New South Wales. Uh, and we provided a series of strategies to um, deal with this. The aim was to harness the many complex factors which converge on the coast to deliver net positive outcomes. So we understood that the coastline is a place where many factors are converging and that is creating a pressure, but where, where there's issues are all also opportunities and how do we leverage that to deliver maximum benefit for our coastal communities. So it was as much about ensuring the significant coastal works delivered community, sorry, it was as much about ensuring that significant coastal works that we're delivering offer community benefit as ensuring that they navigate really complex socio-political issues which often polarise coastal communities. So some of the examples of strategies uh, we proposed in this guideline included um, delivery of cycleways and public foreshore access in conjunction with coastal protection work, um, contributing community congregation points and emergency response facilities to bushfire prone coastal settlements, uh, using coastal projects to contribute to the economic agency and cultural vibrancy of local Aboriginal land councils, and the consolidation and diversification of housing typologies away from coastal risk. And these are the sort of key strategies that we felt um, not only embraced or enhanced um, the coastal characters of New South Wales, but also um, delivered a lot of benefit to the community. Um, and and part, of, part of, it seems like a simplistic idea to say, make sure that when you're delivering coastal infrastructure, you're delivering community outcomes as well. But part of the complexity of that is that it's going across lots of different government agencies and lots of different aspects of the community. But that deep complexity is an innate part of the coastline and we need to be able to operate on that spectrum if we're to create outcomes which sort of bridge all of these different aspects of coastal communities and coastal hazards. Um, so the guideline advocates um, not only to protect the coastal landscape, but also to enhance them socially, environmentally, and economically. So in essence, we were advocating for a triple bottom line approach. Um, this document's not yet public, but when it, be, when it goes out, it will form part of the assessment process for development uh, within the coastal zone in New South Wales. The second project I wanted to talk about is um, in Port Macquarie in New South Wales. It's about five and a half hours north of Sydney. Uh, Port Macquarie is uh, one of our larger coastal settlements. Um, it does have an ageing population um, and they were also um, hit quite hard by the fires earlier this year. Their coastline is quite treacherous. Um, there have been a couple of unfortunate incidents over the last year, a shark attack and some backpackers who um, drowned in the area. Um, so the community have long campaigned for a new ocean pool to be built in the area to create a protected and safe swimming enclosure. After looking at uh, seven different prospective sites, um, we selected Oxley Ocean Beach, Oxley Ocean, Oxley Beach as the location for the new ocean pool. It's just south of Town Beach um, and ended up being a perfect location uh, for this proposed pool. Uh, this is uh, an artist's impression of the proposed pool. And some of the, um, some of the key aspects of this project are actually um, the non-tangible aspects of it. So as a community, um, as a community-based project, this wasn't, um, council wasn't the proponent of this, of this project, um, but the community wanted to make sure that it gave back socially. Um, so what they've done is, is arranged for the land which the pool will be located on to be transferred from Crown back to the, the local Aboriginal Land Council. So this project has actually become a vehicle for 
um, transferring governance and land ownership. And that's something that coastal projects have a huge capacity to do because so much of coastal land is crown land. Um, so the ongoing um, upkeep and governance of the pool will be through the community and the council, but the actual land ownership will um, return back to the local Aboriginal land council and the traditional landowners. Some of, um, some of the actual tangible outcomes of the pool um, were driven quite heavily by the natural landscape. So um, the pool has been designed to fit within the um, natural topography of the headland. Um, and we worked quite hard to make sure that it was um, a, a facility that could be used by a broad cross-section of, of the local community. Um, there's provisions for vision impaired swimmers. A lot of people with vision impairment really struggle to get down to the coastline. And a lot of our beaches are in fact not very inclusive or universally accessible. So this project, um, it was really important that we were able to get access all the way down to the water, which we did. Um, and in fact, you can get access straight into the pool, even if you're in a wheelchair. Um, there's two lanes um, protected near the rock platform, which are for vision impaired swimmers. So what that means is they're semi-enclosed and they're 25 metres in length. And that just helps people with vision impairment feel safe and secure and protected um, and be able to swim lengths and access the ocean without feeling unsafe. There's a children's zone um, which connects to the rock platform. So the idea is that it um, encourages exploration and engagement with the marine life. Uh, and there's also um, an entry which allows rehabilitation and recreational leisure swimming, um, which facilitates that older um, section of the community who, you know, will, will use the pool for more than just doing laps, but um, it sort of facilitates if, if they have a bit of, um, if they're unable to do that in a, in a confident way. So on a, on a much finer scale, this project is focused on the protection and enhancement of the landscape uh, and really focused at serving a broad section of the coastal community and their uses of the pool. The next phase of this project uh, will be detailed design and council approval of the scheme if it goes ahead. Um, I just want to finish uh, the presentation focusing on Wumbrel. Um, it's a case which highlights the intense pressures and opportunities which coastal communities face in New South Wales, obviously. Um, and issues like this call for quite a considered response um, and a shift in the way that we're approaching coastal infrastructure management. Um, these projects really need to address deep socio-political and environmental issues going forward. Um, so my understanding of, of Wumbrel is that um, it's a case of the community almost opposing um, some of these foreshore residences, which are in a, in a really critical situation where the sands are voting under the houses. Um, and the difficulty that state government and councils face in trying to manage this whole issue um, is formidable. Um, and the biggest barrier is not the the physical built um, form. It's really those socio-political issues. How do you move forward on this project when it's polarizing? How do you get support? And how do you make sure that it's benefiting more than just a small, a small cross-section of the community? And at the heart of all of this is those questions of what does the future, what does future coastal protection look like? And how do our engineered foreshores serve the community and permit natural processes to occur? And how do they protect and enhance what we value most about our coastlines? So I bring up these projects because I, I think that ocean pools, like I said, are, are a real analog of um, what we value about the community and what's important to retain. But they sort of also show a path forward on how we should be managing our coastlines we don't want to, we, if we over-engineer them and over-formalise them, that's a departure from what we love about our coastline. Um, but they also show that there is a way forward. It can be reconciled. Built form 
can protect and enhance the coastline and those, those natural and built um, factors can really um, work to enhance one another and complement one another. So thank, thanks very much for your attention today. Um, my research is all freely available online at my website, uh, nicolelarkin.com. Um, and if you want any information, um, please feel free to go there and have a look. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Nicole. Um, <clears throat> that's a wonderful talk and uh, wonderful insights. Um, I just want to, um, um, I prepared a few notes to, um, 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 you know, to talk about, uh, to comment on your talk, but I've completely discarded them now because I, um, uh, I found um, um, just, you know, your talk was overwhelming. It was fantastic. And, and, and I think uh, it's, 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 it's very hard um, uh, to say, uh, to add to what you say. The only thing that I want to um, say is that from my neck of the wood, looking at um, uh, sea level rise and adaptation to sea level rise, um, as you said, in this country, we've been, um, um, uh, we've been building, we have a tradition of building very close uh, to the foreshore on the sand dunes. And um, uh, the, 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 we have not in the past been, we haven't appreciated in the past um, the impact that this has on the ecology, uh, partly because the impacts are slow, incremental, intergenerational, so hard to perceive. Um, in, in over, or, you know, within, 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 within one generation. Um, but the debate on sea level rise is um, uh, initially the way it was framed. Uh, if you look at the debate about 10 years ago, um, it was mostly um, um, when it came to local council, it was mostly framed in terms of um, looking at the values of assets and mostly private assets, although there was some work on um, infrastructure as well, and what the impact of, of sea level rise is going to have uh, on that. More recently, fortunately, there's a lot more um, uh, uh, work on um, uh, uh, asking broader questions, not just about what, we, what are the assets that we own, but what does, what does the coast mean to us, as you, as you, as you talked about, Nicole? Um, and more specifically, um, what are the values uh, that uh, matter to us in our usage of the, of the, of the, of the, of the foreshore, in our interaction with the foreshore? Um, and I think one of the great things about your talk is that um, uh, it brought out in a microcosm through the prism of, um, uh, through the prism of ocean pools, uh, questions um, uh, not just of um, um, in what way we interact with the with the with the, with the foreshore with the, with, the, with the shoreline, but also some of the competing values that are at play that, there. I love the fact that when you showed the two um, uh, pools, one was uh, completely was completely different philosophies of design, uh, and yet both of those are loved. Both of those are appreciated in their different ways. So even within something as simple as an ocean pool. There is some complexity um, in the values, in the way people approach them. And I think there's increasing realization that if we are to adapt to sea level rise, if we are to adapt to the immense change that's coming to us in the next you know, 10, 20, 50 years, then we have to start engaging, not just as, not just as, as, as uh, professionals, but also as community with those values, with what it means. And we have, to make, we have to make some choices. The other thing, the only other thing that I'd like to say is that, um, to, you know, you brought out in your talk something about ocean pools um, uh, that, is, um, uh, that is both resilient and fragile. Um, and they're obviously resilient because, um, um, you know, they're simple structures. Uh, in theory, we could move them if the, if the, if the, foreline, if, if the shoreline has moved. And yet, obviously, uh, uh, they, 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 they're, they're very fragile. Um, and it seems to me that um, uh, there's something about ocean pools that is a bit like um, uh, something that the pandemic um, and this time of environmental change has, um, has showed us that sometimes the thing that, uh, some of the things that matter to us uh, are not the most, um, uh, are not the ones that are most expensive or most lavish um, or even the most visible, and yet they require um, a lot of our attention because they are, they are very fragile. Um, I, won't, I won't say anything um, anymore. I will uh, now open the floor to question. Joe Garcia, would you like to add the question? What do you think? Um, 
Do the people respect the coastline? Do people respect the coastline? I yeah, think uh, that. Yeah. yeah. Joe, is that your question? Uh, yeah. And another question: How do you resolve uh, the, um, for example, erosion the coastline? Well, I'll answer that in two parts. Do people respect the coastline is an interesting question. Um, and it goes back to what Abbas was just summarizing so succinctly for us. I, I think we have to be aware of what we value of the coastline um, as a whole community. Uh, and, and some of my work has been trying to answer that question. Um, but it's not hard to see that Australians and people in New South Wales in particular do truly value their coastlines and their beaches and the um, intrinsic beauty of the natural landscape um, along our coastlines. Um, I think we do respect it in many ways, but what that means has changed quite drastically over the last 10 years. Um, and we're becoming quite aware of it quite quickly, what it, what it really means to respect the coastline. Um, and I think modern de design practices are sort of just coming up to speed with that now as well. Um, and part of that is answering your, quest your second question, which is how do you solve the problem? Um, one thing I would say is um, we're starting to realize that it's not a problem. The coastline is a natural place. There's changes, erosion is a natural process. It's not a problem, it's, it's a space of ebb and flow. And we sort of need to, that's part of us understanding how we value and respect the coast. Um, embracing that it, it's a place of change. Um, so I don't, I don't have an answer on how you solve it, but I think that um, the way that we're understanding that problem is shifting and changing, and you can't start to think about resolution until you understand the issues at, at hand. Design practices are sort of um, coming ahead in leaps and bounds on that, um, and there are some really fantastic projects in New South Wales which are taking a naturalized approach. So engineering coastlines um, to be able to deal with um, severe storm surge events without um, losing all of our dunes or sand. And part of that is landscape and vegetation and planting. And part of it is hard engineering, um, but doing that in a way that creates almost hyper naturalized spaces that can um, have marine habitat, they can have planting, they can facilitate you know, community access, but they can ebb and flow with the tide as it moves is, is sort of a, a new practice that's emerging to deal with that. Now, Sue Reed, um, question about the Port Macquarie design. Uh, so thanks, Nicole, great presentation. Just a question about the Port Macquarie design. Uh, uh, what design consideration, if any, is given to the ocean pool interface in terms of, for example, its ability to host, um, I don't understand the adjective here, Sessile creatures. I don't know whether that makes, um, I don't know that word. Uh, is that even desired? I, uh, does I, that make anything to you, Nicole? It's, I can make a guess that it refers to marine life creatures. Okay. And creatures yep, that live yeah, in tidal yeah, areas. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, makes so sense. Please, please tell us if that's wrong. Um, but I will try and answer that question. Yes, Port Macquarie Ocean Pool did have considerations for um, habitat. Um, and that is quite a difficult thing to navigate. Um, the community had quite a desire for the pool to be used for lap lanes, which typically does not do well in hosting marine life. But what, what I approached that with was that a pool isn't, um, it's kind of a, a modern interpretation of a pool. It's not a single zone for doing one thing. It's a series of zones. And part of those zones are for um, the children's pool, which is sort of a slower space, you know, less, you know, less um, movement because it's protected by um, the other pools deliberately to create a, a protected swimming zone for the kids. Um, but it created an opportunity to have sort of marine life habitat and it also connected to the rock platform, which already ha hosts quite a lot of marine habitat. Um, so. Yes, um, in that project, we did create instances where marine life could live within the pool, but also extend and bleed out of it. Um, that project is sort of still in early stages, but what I really would like to explore further with it 
is how the outside walls of the pool could also be a host for marine and habitat um, for marine life. Um, so the next question, I think you've partly answered it, but I'll put it to you, Nicole, anyway. Um, I'm wondering what this work has helped you understand about ocean pools as ecosystems. For example, does a clean pool tend to denote one that is kept mostly free from the non-human? Very interesting question. That is a really interesting question and, and a good lead on from the previous one. So the two examples that I showed early in my presentation was Bondi icebergs and Bermagui blue pool. And they are polar opposites in terms of that. Icebergs is lime washed, the concrete surface, it gets completely drained and gurneyed twice, uh, or once a fortnight, sorry. Uh, and Bermagui blue pool is actually a really valuable asset in terms of it hosts a lot of marine life and the local community who are the stewards for the pool there do quite a lot to foster that marine life and although Bermagui blue pool can be drained it isn't drained often because it would kill all of that marine life so that's a very difficult um, line to balance like I said um, Pure swimmers often like clean surfaces. They don't want to cut their feet on urchins or oysters, uh, and they just want to be able to use the space. And councils also want to be able to maintain it, um, which is in sort of opposition to it being an, a true ecosystem, which ocean pools can actually host quite a lot of life and, and be quite, um, quite prolific um, in terms of the sea life that they have. Um, so again, there's no hard and fast answer. I think that existing pools, there's a spectrum and new pools, I would really like to see that there's zones where both activities can happen. After mapping the 16 New South Wales ocean pools, did you have a favourite, Nicole? Ah, uh, everyone asks me this question. Um, I've got to say, um, Bermagui Blue Pool is probably my favourite. Um, it's stunning. It's, it's a really fantastic, um, it's a really fantastic pool in a great spot, but it's also, like I said, quite well loved by the community and taken care of by the community. Um, and that's a part of it that I really love as well. And it's also a, 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 one of the main pools away from Sydney that attracts equal amounts of attention. So I find it interesting in, in the way that it can be this asset that um, is a destination for people. A question from Tim Perkins, Tim? Would you like to ask the question, please? Thanks, Abbas. Thanks, Nicole. Um, Thanks, what's, your, <laughs> what's your understanding, Nicole, about the, whether it's the government, the, the, sort of what's the future of these pools, upkeep? And I know there's a couple of other questions that build on that same idea after mine there as well. Um, what, what's the future of these pools? Is it a state government issue? Is it a local government? Is it community? I would love it to be a state government issue. All of the pools are looked after by their local councils. Um, and some councils do fantastic jobs of that. For instance, the Northern Beaches Council have a huge amount of pools. They've got a full-time um, team of staff who look after them and are constantly maintaining them. So they do a great job. And a lot of the councils have come a long way in what the pool maintenance means. They're a lot better at looking after those ecosystems that live in the pool and not putting in things that sort of kill off sea life. Um, but there's no, there's no sort of, despite it being this really unique thing along our state coastline, there's no state strategic um, approach to them or, or even um, like a Sydney-based Sydney approach. Certainly some of them have heritage listing. Um, but it's sort of up to each council individually how they maintain them. And, you know, sometimes that results in councils decommissioning them. So some of them, you know, they try and close them down. In Wollongong, they certainly tried to, but the community sort of pushed back and, and they've spent quite a lot of money upgrading uh, their pools down there. Um, so it, it's difficult. And, and to give you an understanding of how much, um, how sort of little support there is for new ocean pools, the Port Macquarie project that I've worked on is the first ocean pool um, proposal to come as far as it has in 50 years. So we, the last pool that was built was 50 years ago in Cronulla. Um, my understanding of that is that it's a very, um, they're very challenging assets for councils to build, um, both because they're high, they're difficult to maintain. Um, and they're also um, 
difficult to get insurance for, so difficult for councils to sort of cover themselves um, in, in that respect, uh, which is an unfortunate hurdle in some ways because there's multiple attempts by various communities which um, have been documented over the years trying to build new ocean pools. They just never seem to get over the line. But hopefully in Port Macquarie, we will, we will see that. Thanks, Nicole. Um, if I can add, um, this is something, you know, uh, uh, something Nicole and I um, uh, had a quick discussion about um, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about this talk. Um, and it, it, I, th I think the issue of building new um, um, uh, ocean pools uh, bring out things that I thought um, echoed other wider issues with our institutional arrangements um, in terms of dealing coastal issues, with coastal issues generally. Um, and, and I think the thing about um, uh, local council uh, being reluctant um, uh, to build uh, a new pool, to accept community requests for building new pools, partly because of insurance issues, uh, really means uh, in some way that there's a, if, if we want something like this to happen, it would need to be uh, through a, a larger scale uh, intervention on the part of the state government, for example, because often um, uh, local governments are not able uh, uh, to deal with the legal and financial consequences of those. And that's, that's a problem that occurs um, uh, quite widely in issues with a lot of issues to do with sea level rise. So a lot of the decisions uh, that uh, local councils do to do with long-term planning on sea level rise um, are often um, uh, can be the wrong decision, partly not because the local councils don't want to do the right decision, but it's because there's no um, uh, uh, coverage, uh, legal coverage for the councils uh, from uh, uh, higher tiers of government. So I think that's, that's a really interesting issue. And I think it reflects more on um, our institutional arrangements to do with the, how we manage the coastline, uh, not, just, not just about ocean pools. Uh, so John, John Curry. Um, yeah. Hi, John. Yep. Yeah, and thank you, Nicole. Uh, just following on from Tim's question, uh, in terms of, particularly in terms of state government um, recognition and heritage protection, for, the, for these assets. Um, my experience in the Illawarra is that uh, local council is uh, very um, unwilling to push to support um, state heritage listing of, of local pools um, because of the, the issues around uh, maintenance. And, but at the same time, council has suffered, as you probably understand, um, a pushback from the community uh, when they tried to introduce what was going to be called a run-to-fail policy. So your views on uh, the role of state heritage protection would be uh, most interesting. Thank you. Well, state heritage protection, first and foremost, is a formal recognition of an asset or a place that we value uh, and that is, is worth conserving and protecting. Um, so, I mean, in that sense, a state heritage listing is important because it recognises that and, you know, would prevent a run-to-fail approach. Um, but it, it, I understand uh, Council's hesitation as well because heritage listings necessarily put on a great deal of admin in terms of caring for that pool. In saying that though, um, Wiley's Bars is a heritage listed pool and works are often undertaken to that pool, to my knowledge, and they don't have to go through that process. Um, so it may not be the massive barrier that council is concerned it will be, um, but it, it, it serves its purpose in terms of acknowledging that it's an important space, acknowledging that it's a valued space and that the community wants to conserve it. Um, it, it's definitely a complex issue. There was in 1994 a fantastic study commissioned by the National, the New South Wales National Trust, and they surveyed all of the pools in the Sydney metro area, specifically to assess their like potential for heritage significance. Uh, and a few of them were heritage listed as a result of that. But unfortunately, it didn't extend down into the Illawarra. It's possible that you know any anyone could really draw on the research I've done to do that now. Part of it is that there's a great deal of resources involved in just getting around and seeing them and understanding them. Um, so, so that was the point of my research to create that record and asset. So if that ever was done in the future, it's all there and waiting.
She asked a question earlier about um, what design consideration, if any, is given to the ocean pool interface. In terms of the, she specified later, um, I was thinking, she said, of the um, uh, external face to the ocean. Uh, would you like to comment on that, Nicole, specifically, or do you feel yeah. you've answered that already? Yeah, no, I can talk about it a little bit more, yeah. um, probably a bit more broadly. In the instance of Port Macquarie, I think that that is something again, that will develop more as that project goes on, but it's certainly an ambition. Um, I've also been working in collaboration with uh, Tom Heath, who is a um, marine scientist um, in, um, who works in South Sydney. He did a fantastic project uh, in Cars Park, if anyone knows of it, or, or if you don't, I really recommend you go and have a look at it. That's a fantastic example of not an ocean pool, but a foreshore area where intertidal pools were created um, specifically so that habitat could be hosted in there. And I'm not sure if this is what Sue is, is completely getting at, but um, one of the things we have in Sydney is a lot of foreshore where a seawall is just um, belted along the water's edge. Um, and that doesn't often host marine life or, or create a good habitat. Um, so um, Tom Heath is, is certainly looking at some really interesting options of sort of softening that edge and, and broadening it. Um, it's still, you know, a sandstone, it's sort of benched sandstone um, tidal platforms uh, and they fill and then empty as, as the tide goes up and down. But, but that's this idea that I've been talking about of, a, of an engineered but naturalised foreshore which can host habitat, it can host the community access, it sort of does more than what a natural environment would be and is more resilient, but it, it also um, follows all of those natural processes. And, and I think that's where, where Port Macquarie for sure should be headed. And we've got a, a response from uh, Sue saying, yes, uh, Tom Heath's project sounds fantastic. Right. We'll check it out. Um, now, um, a question from uh, about the Clovelly pool from Natalie Pearson. Natalie, would you like to ask the question? Oh, hi. Um, I, I, I don't have a very detailed question. I just missed the start of your talk and um, I wasn't sure if you had included Clovelly in your list of ocean pools. I, I couldn't see it on that fantastic graph that you showed. Um, so I was just wondering whether you see it as a, um, an artificial pool or a natural pool or whether it's included in your data set at all. That, thanks, thanks for your question, by the way. Um, that one I, I didn't include because Two, two reasons. Clovelly um, is technically a deep bay and the pool itself is a, is a bit removed from the water. It's sort of set up on the concrete concourse. So um, just for sort of the hard definition that I was running uh, for the ocean pools I did look at, unfortunately Clovelly didn't make the cut. But um, conversely, I think Clovelly is a really interesting study for um, that edge condition with the water the way the concrete comes down, obviously, you know, it, it's a hugely popular spot and it does a lot for community amenity and makes it much easier for people to access the water and all of the access people have to snorkeling and, and marine life. And those ideas, I think, um, you know, for, for all those reasons, it would be a really interesting part of the study. I just, uh, unfortunately, I had to be a bit cutthroat about what I did and didn't include in the scope uh, in the end. But that's not to say that Clovelly isn't uh, valid or, or interesting at all. It, it's quite relevant. Now, Nicole, I have a, I have a question. Uh, how do you see, um, how do you see um, ocean pools in the context of sea level rise? Um, so do you see them as um, the first thing that's going to go? Um, or um, how, is, is it something that you've, that you've thought about at all beyond the immediate um, um, uh, conflicts and, 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 and design issues about existing pools now, uh, looking into the future? How do you see them uh, evolving? I think, uh, I think they are vulnerable to storm surge. So I think if we keep getting really big East Coast lows, it's gonna start um, putting a lot of pressure on them. And certainly the progressive sea level rise will change them phenomenally because that relationship between 
the seawall and the pool bottom and how it drains and how it works with the tides is so um, it's so sensitive so that any sort of sea level rise change will sort of affect how they all work. They may not flush as well. They may sort of need a lot more maintenance. Um, of course, you know, it, you know it, it's not the first time that an ocean pool will have its bottom raised and, and the wall around the edge um, increased in height. That's mm -hmm. certainly possible. But in my mind, that it sort of just starts um, heightening all those pressures that they currently face. Maintenance costs, you know, compliance with regulations, insurance. Um, so I, I think that they might be the first to go, but not necessarily because of the tangible um, outcomes of that, but maybe the intangible ones of does the does the council have enough resources um, if they upgrade it in a rudimentary way? Does that lose what we love about it? Um, that's that's kind of the most interesting thing i think not really about building new pools but how do we maintain our old ones one if we can at all and yeah. and how can we do it in a sensitive way and way that maintains all those values and it, it look it's possible there's, there's definitely ways to do it um and um the other thing that's a really common occurrence for our ocean pools is you often see next to the the current day ocean pool maybe two or three ghost pools next to it which are old manifestations of of pools that people have built over the years and then it's it's gone in it's been decommissioned or um you know it stopped working so they've just either adapted it or built something next door to it so it's, they've got they've got histories of sort of being reinvented and revived as, as the years go on and i think they've got great capacity to do that in fact i think if you built a new ocean pool, it would be really interesting to design one for a, a long life span. Um, it could be a, a concept like a rice paddy where the bottom ones slowly flood as sea level rise comes in, they get given over to the marine habitat and you have higher ones up that start, you know, becoming more active as, as sort of the years go on. Um, so ideas like that might, might be sort of where I see the future of them going or I hope to explore. Yeah. Um, I know when we talked a couple of weeks ago, um, um, and tell me if you don't want to be drawn on this, um, uh, is uh, you, you mentioned something about uh, the link to the indigenous past um, in terms of the location um, um, uh, of these pools. And um, uh, you said something about there's some evidence that there's some continuity um, uh, in terms of the location of those ocean pools with uh, um, some activity related to the oceans uh, and indigenous practices related to the ocean. Would you like to comment on yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I tried to sort of hint at that at the start of my presentation. Uh, there is um, evidence of many of, or, or some of the pools at least, that they used to be on a site either um, of Aboriginal significance, so it used to be a, a place for women's business, or it was a fish trap. Um, and we just haven't looked at that in, in greater detail. And I think that that would be an incredibly interesting piece of work, not only just um, as a documentation of, of, of the, that history, but also in, in the same way, I'm trying to understand what ocean pool, what we value about our ocean pools. It would be a great, um, great exercise to understand that and understand how they've been managed or used by Aboriginal people over a much deeper span of time. And that's because it, it, it goes to all of the things about um, living in an inter or habitating an intertidal space. How do you manage sort of those shifting changes not over a 200 year span, but over 2000, 20,000, huge time spans, deep time. Um, I think that would be a really, really valuable and valued piece of work to do. Um, and if anyone has started doing work on it, I've, I'd love to talk to them. Um, since talking to you, Abbas, I did find that on the state heritage listings is the entrance ocean pool for that very reason. It used to be a fish trap. Um, and the same for, um, MacIver's Ladies Bars, that used to be um, a place of, of women's business. Um, and, and the whole Coogee, Coogee Bay um, really yeah. was quite, yeah. quite endemic. So, yeah, I think that's really interesting and valuable. Um, and Sea Country, you know, there's, there's 
some beautiful parallels in terms of the way that we engage with our coastlines um, in the way that Aboriginal people talk about sea country. So that, that would be a great piece of work. Um, on this note, going back hundreds of years to the, um, uh, 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 back in history, and um, if you can join me, please. I don't know what's the protocol in, um, uh, in Zoom for sounding the loudest possible uh, clapping um, uh, for Nicole. Um, so uh, thank you very much. I'm going to use my microphone with a, with a clap, good old-fashioned way. Uh, thank you very much, Nicole. Thank you. That was absolutely uh, fascinating, beautiful research, um, uh, uh, beautifully conveyed. Um, and uh, thank you to the audience for wonderful questions that made the, um, uh, the talk even more engaging. Uh, than it actually is. I just would like to finish um, um, on uh, a note, just tell you something about the Political Companion series before I let, before I let you go. Um, um, and I'm reading a blurb here, uh, forgive me, because I, think, I don't think I have the mental capacity to turn the blurb into my own words uh, at, at this stage. So I'm going to read the blurb. Um, uh, the Political Companion series celebrates innovative and rich thinking. The series aims to traverse disciplinary silos to provoke different perspectives and invite new conversation, which is certainly in, um, uh, in, in and I, these are my words now, uh, in, it fits well with the, with the SCIs, with the Sydney Environment Institute uh, uh, mission and activities. Um, so critical companions are individuals within the Sydney Environment Institute's network that inspire others with their unique methodology to stretch horizon and strengthen thinking. And I'm going to move, skip a few things here. Our next critical companion lecture, this is what I was um, uh, wanting to get to, will be with historian Christine Hansen on the 15th of October at 4 to 5.30. Uh, Christine Hansen will dissect 100 years of data and story captured within the crust of the ridgy pearl shells. How interesting. Please register through the SCI events. Um, thank you very much, everyone. Um, and I think that brings um, um, uh, the talk to a conclusion. See you next time, hopefully. Thanks, Abbas. Thank you, everyone.